get started. Uh, many of you are aware that uh, uh, Jay and Elizabeth Kirsten had a, a fire uh, out at their house. Uh, their house was uh, a total and, and complete loss. And um, so uh, a couple things. We are, they, they attend Bethesda, so if you have donations, we're inviting people to, to take their donations over to Bethesda. Um, we will, we're going to stay on top of just having lots of information, so if you need information, you can call up the church and, and we'll get that. Um, but also wanted to let you know that Bethesda is hosting a fundraiser for them on Wednesday. And that fundraiser will be at Eugene Kaiseo, um starting at, uh, starting at 5.30 on Wednesday night. Now we're still going to do our Wednesday night uh, program here, weather permitting. We're supposed to get some bad snow. Uh, but weather permitting, we'll, uh, we'll still do our program on Wednesday night. But just wanted to, to let you know about that and, uh, and invite you to that. Um, also, there is a, um, uh, a ladies' night. Joanne is going to explain that a little bit. I'll let her come up and, uh, and talk about that. We are excited to host a women's evening here at the church on February 12th. It's a Friday evening, and we invite you to come for a soup supper at 630 and then following that, we will be watching the War Room movie. And if you haven't heard about that, it's an excellent movie on the power of prayer. I've had the privilege to watch it and also read the book, and it's excellent. So you won't want to miss it. Um, let's see. We will be meeting in the downstairs basement. So you'll get to lounge on the couches as we watch. And uh, feel free to invite somebody that you think would enjoy that. Any ladies from our community are welcome to come. If you're bringing a whole bunch of people, just let, let us know, let me know or Nicole know so we can plan accordingly for food. But I think if you just want to bring one or two friends, we should have plenty of food. So, um, yeah, just bring them along. And uh, we ask that you maybe bring an appetizer or dessert to share. So it should be a fun evening. We'd love for you to come. explain a little bit of the, the format for today. As many of you know, we've been walking through Song of Solomon and having a great time. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at, at this couple as they entered into a um, uh, kind of a, as they were attracted to one another and we saw it progress into a serious dating relationship and uh, lots of fun. Um, this week, as you know, we are covering um, the wedding ceremony and part of the honeymoon. Now, we're going we're gonna to keep it clean. We're going to keep it classy, uh, but we are going to be honest about what the text says. And, uh, but we also know that we have some, some younger ears in the audience. And so what we're doing and what we're, is that um, um, over in the family center, they're going to have kind of a kid's time, kind of kid's church type thing. Uh, they're going to have some waffles, that kind of deal. So uh, if, you're, uh, if you're helping out with that or if you have kids that you want to take over there, um, we would invite you during the last song to go ahead and, and duck out, head over to the family center, drop off your kids, and, and then come back. Uh, it's good to worship together as a family, so that's why, we're, why we would say, you know, wait till the second or, or third song, and um, then you can just pick up your kid after the service. So it'll be good, though. You won't want to miss. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, a beautiful day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for scripture. Lord, which you inspired, which you gave to us to lead us, to direct us to inspire us, to encourage us. God, we ask for, for your wisdom and your direction this morning as we work through your scripture. Lord, we ask for, um, uh, yeah, your insight, God. Um, 
that this would continue to equip us to live godly and holy lives. Lord, as we prepare to worship, may our singing be honoring and glorifying to you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Sing. 
song um, we're chosen to sing has a familiar tune and but the words are kind of set to uh, a tune of relationship between husband and wife and uh, I ask you to take your hymnals and turn to page 621 and follow along as we sing and uh, the verse at the top of Well, at this point in the service, we always like to have a prayer time. And uh, 
As we get ready to pray, uh, a few uh, prayer requests from the missionaries who we love and support and learn from. Uh, Jennifer Goosen, um, just for spiritual growth in the lives of the students. Uh, for Kenton and Kedron Miller, um, as they are, get ready to volunteer in the local schools and uh, get and build some relationships there, uh, that they would have a good influence there. Uh, for Jason and Nicole Quirin, uh, they've requested prayer for the believers in their area, for courage and for strength for them, and, and for those who have a new relationship with Christ. And for Paul and Sarah Rogas, um, they've asked prayer for their marriage, for their family, for conversations and, and joy. So uh, let's have a time of silent prayer. Uh, this time I'll just let you pray quietly for a little while, and then I'll close this off. So let's have a little bit of prayer. Father, this morning we, we pray for those we love who are close to us. Pray that they would grow in their relationship with you, that you protect them, watch over them. Lord, we pray for the missionaries this morning. We pray for Jennifer Goosen, for those who she works with, for these students, that they would grow uh, in, in, in their faith and in their relationship with you. We pray for Kenton and Kedron Miller as they volunteer in the local schools. God, that, that they would be this remarkable influence. And we pray for divine conversations and divine appointments, God, and that you would be, be leading them in that endeavor. Um, endeavor. We pray for Jason and Nicole Queering uh, and for the, the believers that they work with and for those who have, who have just recently come to know you as Lord and Savior, God. We pray for uh, strength and courage as, as to be a true Christ followers, to truly be in the minority in that community. And uh, for Paul and Sarah Rogas, we pray for their marriage, for their family, pray a protection and a blessing over that relationship, over that union, that, uh, that you would keep that faith and that it would blossom and flourish. And, and for conversations with, uh, with other people, and that they too would continue to have joy um, as, they, um, as being a believer uh, definitely puts them in the minority. God, thank you for this morning. Um, we look forward to hearing from, from your word and from your spirit. Amen. Ushers.
Everybody just relax. We're going to have fun today. It's good. I would start with a, an analogy or, or a parable, so to speak. So there was a guy who wanted to, to study the, the, a people group who lived down by the river. And uh, he wanted to learn about their life, their, their culture, their, their customs. And so he, he moved down alongside the river and he wanted to get to know this people group. And uh, one evening while he was hanging out alongside the river, they were doing supper together. And uh, while they were doing supper, out of the river came this huge crocodile. Huge 1,500, crocodiles get big, I don't know, like 1,500-pound crocodile came up. And just kind of kept creeping closer and closer. And he started to get a little bit alarmed. He said, there's, there's this massive crocodile that's coming up. And all the people around him shushed him and said, we don't talk about the crocodile. That crocodile worked a little bit closer and it bit the leg off a guy and went back into the water. And the guy's left screaming and bleeding and in pain and agony. And, and he said, did you see that crocodile? And they said, we don't talk about the crocodile. Next, next evening, the same thing happened. And, and, and they're doing supper together. And here comes this crocodile again. And, and he, he tries to holler out a warning. And he said, there's, there's a crocodile coming. And people said, it's, it's inappropriate to talk about the crocodile. Crocodile came up, devoured a guy completely, went off in the river, never saw the guy again. This guy spent the next several weeks studying the people, and then he'd, he'd go up and down the river banks, and, and, uh, and he'd see people who were missing legs and, and limbs and, and, and bore scars and pain. And every so often, he'd see the crocodile come out and bite off another limb or drag someone else into the water. And wherever he went, he would say, you, you have a crocodile problem. And they said, we don't talk about the crocodile. And he noticed that the crocodile was, was particularly fond of teenagers. Bit into a lot of teenagers. Every so often, the crocodile would, would get hold of, of a husband or a wife, drag it into the river, and the whole family would, would be wrecked by grief. And you could, you could, you could find magazines on crocodiles. You could watch TV shows on crocodiles. You could listen to stand-up comedians talk about crocodiles. But whenever he tried to, to bring it up amongst the people group, they said, no, we don't talk about crocodiles. The world has its own narrative on sex. And it's a little bit almost irresponsible for us to sit back and say, we don't talk about crocodiles. I mean, how many people have, have you seen ha had their life ruined or experienced pain or, or torment because we didn't talk about crocodiles? At some point, we're going to have to get over our fear, say something, and save someone's life. Average age of exposure today to pornography is eight. Not eighth grade. Eight, as in eight years old. So if you're not talking about crocodiles with your kids, the world will. And, and, and there's a lot that we can do. There's a lot we can say. But one of the first things that we need to say and ask is, does the Bible have anything to say on this at all? I mean, is there any kind of guidance? Is there any kind of model? Is there any kind of instruction that, that's given to us? Other than a few kind of cryptic verses in the New Testament, do we get anything else, else on this? The, I, I am a little bit curious. And this is, this is, I know this might be scary. I would ask for a show of hands. How many of you have sat in a church service and heard, heard someone preach on either sex or on Song of Solomon? Show of hands. Has, has anyone actually sat in a church service and heard that ha happen? How many of you have heard teaching on it, whether like through a podcast or through a book 
or, or, or through some kind of Bible study or, or that kind of thing. How many of you have sat through teaching on Song of Solomon? Okay, either we have shy people or no one in this congregation has ever heard teaching on this. I think some of you are in your 80s. It's a lot of sermons. Some of you come from different backgrounds, a lot of churches. Here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see the wedding. We're going to see her arrival. We're going to see his arrival. And we're going to pull some some stuff out of the wedding ceremony. Then we're going to follow them to their honeymoon. We will see an interaction that is, first of all, entirely visual. Then we will see him comfort her fears, which is interesting. It's a very powerful verse. We will see the relationship start to get physical. And then we will see it jump to the very end, and we're going to hear from God about this whole thing. What we will not see today is we will not actually see them make love. Okay, That remains a private, confidential thing. We're not, we're not there for that. Solomon kind of brings us right up to the point, but then the storyline skips ahead, and then we hear them reflecting on the experience. Chapter 3, starting in verse 6. We've had, uh, you know, the, the, at first we covered uh, chapters 1 up until, I think, uh, 2 verse 7. That was kind of the first section. Where they, where, they, where they had first kind of gotten to know each other. The whole book begins with, with this proclamation about the character of the man. I love that. I believe a good relationship begins with the character of the man. That, and that first section ends with this phrase in, in chapter 2, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And in the Hebrew, that's a strong phrase. To say, I adjure you, means you swear to me. That you will not stir up or, or awaken love until it so pleases. And that's the first section. And we see them get into a more serious dating relationship. You see here courting her. You, you, you see him pursuing her. They continue to compliment one another with kind of these bizarre cultural compliments. But, I mean, we explained it. I mean, it made sense in that time. They're a little bit odd for us. That whole horse thing, we, we kind of had to work through that. Um, but then that section ends well. Uh, ends again. Uh, chapter 3, verse 5. Um, this is called the second poem. It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Today we're in chapter 3, verse 6. And this is what we read. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its backs of gold, its seats of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. You'll notice in verse 7, it kind of depends on what translation you have. In verse 7, it, it, it talks about the litter of Solomon, or Solomon's carriage. Um, then in verse 9, uh, whether or not you have the, what translation you have, it, it says, King Solomon made for himself a carriage. 
Now, what's interesting is that these are two different Hebrew words. And they kind of mean the same, same thing, but, but they're two different words. The first one in verse 7, mitah, literally means bed. Uh, verse 9, um, uh, ap- aprion, which, which means royal car. And, and it's not conclusive. I mean, we are dealing with poetry here. But there's a pretty strong argument that we're actually talking about two separate things. And, and as the storyline go, I, I think that fits well, that, that we're talking about two different things. Because what we're seeing is in, in those first couple verses is we are seeing her arrival. We are seeing her come in from the desert on, on, on this carriage. And then later on we see his arrival. And, and what has likely happened, based both on, on grammar or, or on culture, that, that Solomon has sent another word for would, would be a palaquin, to, to fetch his bride. And you've probably seen these. And it, it, it can be anything from a chair to like a little bed. And, you know, it would have like maybe like a roof or maybe even some curtains. And it was carried on the shoulders of men, right? So there'd be two long poles, you know, and then kind of your, your muscular slave men would kind of hoist this up on their shoulder and, and then carry it in. And this is a very grand, regal, you know, royal way of entrance. And so he has sent this this chair thing off to fetch his bride. And so she's riding in. If it, and if it was a desert, there was probably, you know, shade from the sun, maybe some curtains. And she gets to ride in on this thing. And we kind of do this today, actually. What we will do after the ceremony, oftentimes, is, you know, the, the couple will go away like in a limousine or a borrowed Cadillac or, you know, they borrowed someone's Mustang. You know, we get some classy, shiny car and someone waxes it up all clean. And, and when the, after the ceremony, that's how they leave. Well, that's kind of how they arrive. They, they come in on these things. And Solomon would have, would have had his as well, too. And we'll talk about the, in that in just a minute. But the other thing that, that's interesting and, and why I think we're talking about two different ones. So in verse 7, behold, the litter of Solomon around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel. And so Solomon has sent a, a bodyguard processional to escort his bride in. Ladies, can you imagine showing up to your wedding and rather than like four groomsmen, like there were 60 and they were all Marines and they were all fiercely loyal to your husband. They're all armed to the teeth. Just there to keep you safe. King David, when he was king, right? And when you're king, lots of people hate you. When King David was king, he had 30 mighty men as his personal bodyguard. Solomon sent 60 to pick up his bride. I mean, really the only thing we have today by comparison is, is, is the, the, the presidential, um, oh, what, what do we call that thing? The, the motorcade, the presidential motorcade, right? You, probably, you know, and there's like a couple cops on motorcycles, and then there's a, a whole bunch of police cars, and then there's all these black SUVs and, and men with guns, you know? And then and there's always three limousines because you want to hide which one the president is. And then there's a bunch more, you know, black SUVs, you know? And all these guys are... You know, sporting their, you know, SIG 229 chambered in 357, you know, and, and their FNP submachine guns, which are ugly to look at, but very ergonomic. And, you know, and everything's kind of tucked into a, you know, a suit and everyone's just kind of armed to the teeth. Like kind of today, that's really kind of our only comparison for what this would look like. Well, can you imagine if this is what shows up to your house, ladies, just to get you to the church on time? That'd feel pretty good, wouldn't it? And I got to tell you that I'm realizing I really goofed this up. I, when we got married, I have no idea how Joanne got to the church. Like, 
I guess she bummed a ride from someone because I am clueless on how she got there. And when we left, we left in like this gray Honda Civic. So not regal, okay? I mean, it was washed, but I should have studied my Bible more before I got married. Then, then we talk about Solomon's arrival. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its backs of gold, uh, its seats of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. So now this would have been his couch or, or his arrival. Uh, he, made it, he made it out of wood of uh, Lebanon, so that would have been like a cedar or a cypress, um, silver and gold, um, inlaid with purple fabric. We were talking about this a little bit in Sunday school. Purple fabric back then was incredibly rare and incredibly expensive. How they got it was there was, there was a tiny little um, 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 sea snail that lives along the Mediterranean coast. And you would have to gather a buckets of this stuff. And each little snail just secretes a tiny little bit of this purple dye. And then there's somebody like how long you prolong it to the sun changes it from purple to blue. But that's why purple is the color of royalty because it was so expensive. They were the only ones who could afford this very expensive elaborate dye. I mean, when you have to gather buckets of these little snails just to get a little bit of dye, it made it very, very expensive. Uh, it was called Tyrian purple. And, um, and eventually they came up with synthetic dye, so it wasn't as necessary. Um, also, you'll see in the Old Testament, you will see um, purple dyes, blue dyes, being kind of the, the most... Um, sought-after dyes in the Old Testament. It says that the interior of the chair was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. This suggests to me that there were other people helping out, uh, that, the, that, that there were other people who were, who were in favor of this relationship, who were excited about this relationship and, and worked, worked together. And, and I think the whole wedding ceremony tells us a couple things. First of all, it tells us that, that Solomon was financially secure. I mean, to be able to, to afford this kind of stuff. I, I know I've told you about my, my friend, uh, a wise Indo-Canadian man back in Abbotsford. He told his sons, he says, you are not allowed to date until you have a job and 10 grand in the bank. He said, you will not mislead some young girl by dating her, you know, until you are prepared to financially take care of her. He said, you call it the dating period. I call it the deceiving period. And he did all that with this Indo-Canadian accent. It was awesome. But, but so we see that, that Solomon was in a place where he's financially secure. Uh, we see that Solomon himself spent considerable personal time and effort into preparing the wedding. I mean, he made some of the stuff himself. But we also see that we have friends who supported it. And folks, if, if your friends are hesitant about your dating relationship or your upcoming marriage, you need to take that really seriously. But, but we see that, that the community is supportive of this. Verse 11, go out, O daughters of Jerusalem, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. This probably wasn't his, like his royal crown. This was probably um, like a floral arrangement or some kind of a head garment that, that he would have worn for the wedding ceremony. Um, you know, one of the rules in public speaking is that you never chew gum or anything like that, but I picked up a head cold, so I'm going to pop cough drops this entire time. My apologies for poor presentation. Um, but th- this is also an affirmation, even just that his mom approved uh, of the entire wedding, that, 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 she would, that she would do this. When chapter 4 starts, so that's the wedding ceremony. When chapter 4 starts, they're, they're, they're at the Hilton, all right? The crowds have left, the ceremony is over, it's just the two of them. 
And as I said earlier, this first part is entirely visual. Look how it starts, chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Okay, now before you go and quote that to your wife and expect it to get you anywhere, the veil is still on. Okay, she's still dressed. He compliments her eyes. Uh, He says they're beautiful. He compliments her hair. During this time, goats were were usually black. So, I mean, and, and we see this earlier. So she probably has beautiful black hair. But what's so sexual about this is the verb tense. The goats are leaping down the slopes of Gilead. So she has undone her hair, and he is watching it fall down around her shoulders. Okay, he's, he's watching her hair be undone. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bears twins, and not one of them has lost its young. This woman had all of her teeth. And they were white. You know, good tooth care is actually a fairly recent development. And there was, I, I, I'm not sure, I think it's Portugal. I don't want to give Portugal a bad rap, but I think it was Portugal. All their dentists have to go through med school first. So very, there are very few dentists in the country. So tooth care is bad. So, so whenever you go to the tent, the, you know, the dentists are so backed up because there's so few. People just go to get the bad ones yanked. I mean, good tooth care is still kind of a, a, a relative new thing and, and, and somewhat rare, right? And I don't know if you've seen pictures of, like, teeth from, like, back in the day when, you know, when they pull up the, the, like, the dead people. I mean, they're, all like, worn down and missing and, you know, just everyone had bad teeth, really bad teeth. So this girl's amazing. She has all of her teeth. It says that all of them bear their twins, right? So top and bottom are matched up, okay? Um, and they're all white. They're like a flock of shorn ewes coming up from the washing. Okay? Sheep were primarily white back then. So he's saying you have really white teeth. I mean, like, like a sheep right after it's been bathed or, or shaved down. You have white teeth, and they all match up. So he's complimenting. Here's the other thing that's kind of funny. Why, why is he able to see your teeth? Because she's smiling, right? Everyone grins on their honeymoon. Okay? So big toothy grin. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. So she had red, red lips, right? I mean, even today, women wear red lipstick. He compliments her lips. Pomegranates, right? You have like this round red fruit. And so if you cut it in half, um, you know, you kind of have these two sort of round lumps, right? So her, her cheeks are, are reddish, right? And they, ha- they have kind of a nice distinguished way about them. I don't know. Maybe she has distinguished cheekbones. I'm not sure. And maybe all this was done with makeup. Maybe this is just how she was. We, we don't know. But you see how, how, how he goes into great detail to, to compliment her face, right? And on her honeymoon night, he spends most of the time complimenting her face. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warrior. The Tower of David was a national monument and was actually a defensive structure because it faced Syria. And, and it was actually part of their, their national defense. It was very tall, all right? It, it was something that was tall. It was regal. It was probably smooth stone on the outside. And it was something that commanded authority and respect. And so he's really speaking kind of about her, her stature, okay? She has a beautiful neck. Just kind of the, the way that she holds her head up. There's almost like this air of nobility about it, okay? And, and she has like this, this confidence and, and this pride. 
right? She's, she's very beautiful. And, I mean, he's really speaking to her whole posture and, and how she stands. She has a regal, beautiful neck. He carries on. He says, your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Now, this is a very clever statement. Because not only does it speak to the sense of touch, but it also speaks to technique, okay? Um, fawns are soft. They are gentle. They require a gentle touch. Uh, it also speaks of, and I'm not sure the best word on this. I couldn't really find one. But it also speaks of, like, rarity. I mean, how often do you get to pet a fawn, right? Um, but more than that, it speaks of technique. I mean, if you're hiking in the woods and you see a fawn or two, you know, kind of in the grass or behind the trees, and you want to get close, how would you go about it? You would go slowly. You would go gently. You would creep up on it. It, it would be focused, right? You don't just, like, jump out from behind a tree and you're like, hey, fawns, you know? I mean, there's, there's no, like, roughhousing here, okay? How you interact with fawns is different than how you interact with, like, your family dog or your family cat or the parakeet or what. I don't know. But how you interact with different animals is different. Okay? So there's, there's actually a lot of clever beauty in, in the fawns. Everything about this is slow, quiet, delicate, and anticipating a delicate touch. Until the day breeze and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. We had talked about this earlier. Earlier she had said, um, last week we talked about she had made this plea, until the day breeze and the shadows flee, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bether. Um, until the shadows flee, we talked about that being morning, right? When shadows flee is when shadows get smaller, when they diminish. And so she is in their dating relationship. She's being honest about her desires. And she is saying, until morning, all night long, come and be a young stag on the mountains of Bether. Uh, and we talked about that. And, um, and so here he is saying, you know, now that they're married, he responds, until the day breeze, until the shadows of flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and, and the hill of frankincense. And it's, it's a little bit comical, but the verb on this is very strong, right? This is not, you know, I've thought about it, like maybe if I have some spare time, you know, maybe I will go to the mountain of myrrh. Like, you know, the verb on this is, you know, I am committed to this task. <laughs> you know, this is going to happen. Very strong grammar on that one. Then he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. So Solomon steps back, okay? His wife is disrobed in front of him. And he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. He looks at her entire body, top to bottom, and he says, you're perfect. Go back to chapter 1. Did this girl have a perfect body? No. She was darkened by the sun. She had dark skin. In, her, in their culture, that was not a thing of beauty. This woman did not have a perfect body. But it was perfect to him. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Your wife is your standard of beauty. Gentlemen, one of the quickest ways for you to cause deep, deep pain is for you to critique your wife's body. Okay? Especially when she's standing before you offering herself to you, right? You be very careful with your words. Next, he says something very pivotal and very important. So even at, at this threshold of incredible passion and incredible desire, he shows himself to be restrained and considerate and gentle. He says this, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. 
depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sanir and Hermon, from the dens of lions and from the mountains of, le- of, of leopards. These are actual mountains. You go on a map, you'll find these. They're very high elevations. Uh, they're often covered in, in, May, uh, in, in mist and rain and snow. And they're very intimidating places, okay? Especially at the summit. The summit of a mountain can be very uh, uh, scary, actually, uh, if you've ever done some of that. Um, You're very exposed. There's no shelter. It's it's easy to get hurt. Going down the mountain, lots of injuries. He calls her out of a scary place. He calls her out from the den of lions, from the mountains of uh, leopards, right? These, These mountains were scary, and he's calling her away from a place of fear. He's calling her away from a place of fear. He's saying, don't be scared. He's saying, I will be gentle, and I will be caring, and I will be loving with you. You know, I've never heard stories, you know, on honeymoon night where the bride is the physical aggressor. You know, hotel door closes, and she just slams her man to the floor and demands satisfaction. Never heard that. What I have heard is a bride's being scared, nervous, And some even crying out of fear. This girl is nervous and she holds some reservation. And he takes a moment to speak gently to her. To address her fears. And to call her away from a place of fear. Your bedroom should always be a safe place. Both emotionally and physically. Even in this intense motion of passion. He is very considerate of her heart. I would also point out that up until this point, he hasn't laid a finger on her, right? This has been an entirely visual experience. He addresses her fears, and now we start to see it get physical. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful um, is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils than any spice. So he continues to speak of love, how he loves her. Uh, To him, she is stunning. Your Your lips drink nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of of Lebanon. What kind of kiss is that? Honey and milk are not on the lips. They're under the tongue. In modern day, we would call that a French kiss. Now... France wasn't established in a nation until like 800 A.D., and he wrote this 1,000 B.C. So he's got about 1,800 years on the French. So we've perhaps mislabeled this as a French kiss. But, um, but when I say French kiss, you know what I'm talking about. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. In the Song of Solomon, the woman's sexuality is often called a garden. Look for that imagery throughout the book. Solomon says she is a garden lock. So Solomon speaks of her virginity and how she has remained chaste until this point. The garden is locked, the spring is locked, the fountain is locked. This man has kept herself, or this woman has kept herself for this man. Uh, you also see in Proverbs uh, the, the use of springs and wells as euphemisms for sexuality for men and women. But you also need to understand that in an arid region like this, in a, in a des- desert, just how how unique and refreshing a garden was. This is, this is very strong imagery. Uh, a garden was, was an oasis. Uh, it was often, you know, walled off. Uh, it was a place of refreshment. It was secure. It was safe. 
It was a place of rest, of refuge, even safety. It was beautiful. To be able to make love to your wife is a mini vacation. When you can go home, lock the bedroom door, that's a little bit of heaven right there. It's refreshing, it is restful, it is safe. No matter how hard your day was, no matter how the world weighs upon you, you still have your own private garden, your own private oasis in the arms of your spouse. He continues to speak. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. He's obviously excited. He's just kind of starting to ramble on. But notice now that the garden is unlocked. For sometimes she has remained sexually pure after opening up her mind to him. Then she opens up her heart to him. And now she prepares to open herself physically to him. She speaks. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. NIV reads, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. The north wind was strong and powerful. The south wind was, was slow and gentle. For the first four chapters, there has been this theme of do not awaken, do not awaken. Swear to me that you will not awaken. Now she says, awake. And then she says this, let my beloved come into his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And this is the moment where she invites her husband to consummate their marriage. I believe what happens next is a fast forward. We don't see the actual lovemaking. Uh, Solomon has brought us right up to that point, but then the public is sort of ushered out the door. The couple is left alone, and we don't hear from them until sometime later. The next words are spoken by the husband, and they are past tense. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Okay, so everyone's kind of lying there, big smiles on their face. And he reflects on it. And, and this is basically Hebrew for, thank you, Jesus, that was awesome. Okay? Remember that in the moments prior, she said, um, as she offered her, her body, but she said, let my husband come into his garden. Now he reflects on it and he says, my garden, my sister, my bride, my myrrh, my spice, my honeycomb, my honey, my wine, my milk. Nine times he says mine. Why does he say mine? Because she gave it to him. And that's what you do in marital intimacy. You give to one another. My beloved is mine. I am his. We saw this earlier on in the relationship. I, am no longer, uh, I no longer belong to myself. I've given myself away. At the core of a good marriage is a giving attitude. Joanne and I, from the beginning of our marriage, latched onto this phrase, how can I give to you? A good relationship is two people who are continually striving to give. You don't keep track. You don't keep score. There's no tally sheets. It is how can I give to you? How can I give to you? How can I give to you? The final phrase of what we're covering today. You know, several um, Bibles ascribe it to the chorus. Uh, it's not spoken by the couple. Uh, so they think it's the friends. Um, but I heard one, one speaker ascribe this final phrase to God. And I'm actually really intrigued by that thought. And, and here's why. The final phrase is this. Eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. 
So the final phrase is, is an admonition to enjoy it. And to enjoy it a lot, right? To be drunk with love. To eat. The reason I'm intrigued by the idea that this is God is speaking is who else would have the authority to make that kind of statement? The chorus of friends? I mean, at times the chorus of friends seems like a bunch of single gals. Like, I mean, on what grounds are a bunch of single gals going to say, eat, drink, have your fill of it? It's poetry. We don't know who said this. Like I said, there's no labels on when who he speaks, when she speaks, when the chorus speaks. We just kind of have to decode that from the terminology. But as to who can actually give this kind of admonition, who has the authority to make that kind of statement, honestly, I think God fits that bill better than anyone else. Marital sex was intended for pleasure. Uh, we know that not only from Song of Solomon, but other verses as well. And in the history of the church, it's not always been viewed that way, which is too bad. God save us from our sins. Um, there was, for a while in England, they told the young women, just lay there and think of the queen. Because the thinking was that sex was just for procreation, and then you have babies, and, and then England has a better fighting force. Dark times, man. I'm telling you. Marital sex is something to enjoy, and it's a way to give to your spouse. So, what's the take-home application on this? Hmm? Be not hearers of the word only. Um, one pastor in the MB Network told his congregation, I won't tell you who, he, who did this, but when he, he, he taught on this and he told his people, he said, I want you to go home and I want you to make love every night for a week, and then I want you to email me what that did for your relationship. Now, we're not going to do that. I don't want to know. But it was interesting. He got apparently hundreds of responses. A lot of them were from men going, Woohoo, I love your church. Right? But there were also responses from women saying, I've not felt pursued in years, and this week I felt pursued. It was amazing the response that that he got from his congregation. Song of Solomon is poetry. And as such, it is descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning it describes for us what happened, but it doesn't prescribe or command a certain behavior, right? The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, that is prescriptive, that tells you what to do. Uh, Stuff like Song of Solomon, it's descriptive, it's describing what happened. But that said, I think there's a lot to learn from this book. I mean, gentlemen, over the last three weeks, we have learned a lot about how to interact with our wives, interact with the woman in our life we see how he complimented her gracefully he, he used clever comparisons of the day he was slow with her he addressed her fear he addressed her motions ladies the same thing we've seen a lot on how this woman interacts with her man i think one of the biggest things that, that we see this week is simply how she gave to him how she gave to him completely and without reservation she's very free in her communication with what she wants and desires And she's generous. She says, all that you see is yours. Friends, God understands good sex. Um, You know, Romans is a book on on righteousness. And how God articulates righteousness, you will never make it to that level. Ephesians talks about identity. And how God articulates identity, you will never make it to that level. Um, Galatians, I believe, is is a book on unity. And how scripture identifies unity, you will never make it to that level. 
Song of Solomon is a book about romance and marriage and commitment and good intimacy, and you will never make it to that level. All right? You think you're some kind of romantic Casanova? You got nothing, okay? God is the one who designed this, and God understands it at a much deeper level than you ever will. And it's why for the rest of our lives, we need to be good students on what it means to date, what it means to serve, what it means to love, what it means to romance, what it means to be committed, what it means to work through arguments and difficulties. Because what's in this book, you'll never ascribe to that. God understands good sex, and, and, and we need to be talking about crocodiles, okay? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for, for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for, for its application in all parts of our lives. Even in the most secret parts of our marital relationship, God, you have given us guidance and wisdom and direction and good advice. God, you have laid out an amazing template that we can never live up to, but that we can always learn from. And so we thank you for that. God, may we always be students of your word. And may we always be students of our spouse, Lord. Always learning, always excited to hear, listen, always excited to give. We love you, Jesus. Amen. you